The Q Affair. Part two, the Q Woo. While some similarities to living people may exist in your mind on reading this novel, it is a work of fiction. So it's your problem if you have people like this in your life. Chapter 15. I had a lot to do. There was a lot of new research coming out as each new revelation by Fandango and by the videographer that had worked on the puzzle over on his channel led me to new sources which provided more information. I waded through old videos, tracing the history of the puzzle, looking for clues on it and about how it tied into Q to see if I could find some more solid ties in the visual and artistic clues I was looking at, as well as the comment section, which often yielded the best results as to who was doing what with who. It was the connections between channels that gave the most information, I thought, about who the network of people running the Discordian op that Q and the Liber Locust might be down on YouTube. I wanted to find out which channels they buzzed around on most. I felt the puzzle was probably a hook with engaging, trendy ideas. Yeah, yeah, boomer speak, whatever. Dig it, baby. That pulled people into the Discordian up, as Q did, or the hippie mystical theosophy of the Liber Locust stuff and kept them interested and in there so they could then be handled for political or monetary gain, or both perhaps. There did seem to be a targeted marketing aspect to both the ops, a deliberate attempt to appeal to slightly different demographic segments of the truther market, as boring old marketers would say. Down on Facebook, the fans of both appeared to be crossing over a bit now too, once you started understanding their internal language and their interests or obsessions a bit better. I could see that Twitter was very rich as well for researching these networks, just as I'd found initially from watching the Discordians' tweets. Their tweets had led me to spot some of the similar topics that would have been unique to the puzzle and cue ties, easier to spot once you started seeing the connections. Then you could go through the followers and follows list and cross-reference them to find out who had the same followers in common, then skip from there to their YouTube channels. If they were listed and glean more information from looking through their playlists about who might be connected to who, and that way try to narrow it down to the main organisers of the op on YouTube. A lot of the numbered group members followed the YouTubers involved in the puzzle dispute going back a long time and were still tweeting back and forth with them. I heard Terence say in another interview from around that time that he was excellent at seeing connections and patterns and I realised that this is what I was seeing as well. Connections and not random ones like cute proofs, picking out letters from a Trump tweet and forcing them into a word that you wanted them to make so you could claim an earlier Q post was predicting what Trump was saying, but more firm connections starting to coalesce.
I had had to look further away, like back a bit further in time on the chance to see the development of it when there were less people promoting both ops, but it was there and Terence's name was always coming up. Was he there from the start of Q as well as the Liber Locust? I thought so, even if he was being shy about it now, while simultaneously passing little sly hints in interviews that, well, maybe, since he was so very smart and all. He couldn't help boasting, but didn't want to get his ops crossed over in truthers' minds, was what it looked like to me. Bad marketing, that. Pitched at slightly different market segments, see? Don't want to throw the pillows and owls in with the shoes now, do you? Shoppers just get confused that way. Winter set in, and as Xmas approached fast, I had quite a collection of photographs that Q had given me in DM. He'd given me more photographs of himself as well. I was as dubious about them as I had been about the first one, but kept my mouth shut. I was very glad to get them, as every photo he gave me gave me something else to try to source, to attempt to discover whether he was Terence or someone else, maybe even this Jay Quinn person that he swore to high heaven he was. He never lied, he pointed out regularly, still sensing I didn't believe anything he said. Yes, dear, I'd say. No need to keep telling me. I know. I'd input the photos into the few reverse image search online tools I found and come up with nothing. Either he'd stripped down the information off them, he had, the EXIF information was gone on most, or they couldn't be found online. My idea was, if I found out who he was, I would then have something he would be far more worried about than I was. The man in the photos was a uniformed man. If Jay wasn't Q, and was just, as some of the ex-military fanboys of Q put it in disgust, down on the A-chan board, stolen valour, he'd be the one they'd want to lynch, not me for pretending to be Q and scaring the wits out of poor little me. I intended to go public, bigly, on the blog and my YouTube channel, to the cops, the whole thing, if I found out he'd stolen someone else's identity and that a military guy's to boot. My bet was he'd pee himself with fright and beat a hasty retreat. He wasn't going to go away on his own. That much was becoming clear. So I'd get the whole Q army after him, as he'd threatened to do to me. I'd found out from the videos that were now being made about Terence that it was quite likely that my little alphabet number boy was a bona fide stalker. Terence had a conviction for stalking a woman which the two that had money and puzzle trademark issues with them were now making very public, on videos and in tweets. After checking the veracity of the claims by looking for the documents on the official government and court sites, I found out that he was no slouch in the threatening people department either, having once started a company which purported to be about online defence reputation but which, when you went online and looked, 
defended your reputation by ruining someone else's and looked like it threw in a bit of stalking for you on the side via social media as part of its services. The company didn't come to much and didn't last long, but when I learned about its connection to the tripod guy argument, I figured he was still fond of a spot of harassing of people who didn't agree with them. Sounded rather like Jay, in fact, who he was now great pals with. Fandango had been in that business with him briefly as well, being quite an accomplished troll too, apparently, with a reputation that matched what I'd learned about him just from observing how he acted on his channel, like a spoiled brat. All of them in the puzzle business had pals in the numbered group too, that they didn't let on were going by fight club rules. Two minds as one were Jay and his new pal Terence, when it came to who they liked, if one read their emails as I was expected to every so often in DM, with Jay loving reading them out and talking about what a good sense of humour old Terence had and what a super chap all round he seemed to be. They both found Azire quite a comic character and were both strangely indulgent of her criticisms of people. That included Jay as well, since he was supposed to be Bob Coventry, the stalker, and he was supposed to be annoyed at that. Then there was the inconsistency of his lack of annoyance at the things she was saying about me that had seemed to have been there right from the start, despite why he said he'd started talking to me now that I saw his real attitude more clearly underneath the facade of empathy. Fandango and the puzzles videographer Laplace, where the emails between the two friends made quite clear, both hated by Terence. Jay seemed to be trying a little too hard to prove to me that Terence and he were different people, while I was working away quietly to prove they were or weren't, and not caring which turned out to be the case, as long as I found out quickly who the guy really was, so I could get away safely from a worsening situation. Jay, during this time, smelled a rat about my still wanting to be there in DMs, with the accusations and hostility continuing. I confused, it confused him, I imagine, trying to figure out what I was thinking. I suppose I must have looked like I'd cooled my ardour towards him fairly rapidly while still being there, but I had the excuse that I was still upset about the threat, but immobilised like a deer in love with the headlights. He started bringing up the threat every time he was suspicious, at first claiming he hadn't made it at all, then that he just wanted to scare me, not something I thought a very good excuse for having done it. He claimed frequently that I was stupid, or sometimes stupid like a fox. He finally admitted to making the threat after bringing up the topic, which I knew I couldn't press him on, and I bolted upright on the daybed where I'd been lying in recovery position after the day on my feet at the restaurant and screenshot it before he realised what he'd done and deleted it.
I had proof of some sort, no matter how flimsy, that it had been made. I believe he despised me at this point, but was literally in two minds, as there was some madness in him that could hold different parts of his personality on two different tracks. He'd made that clear with his division of people into good and evil and his not being able to see any good in someone when he was seeing them as evil. This didn't extend to himself, who he couldn't allow to think of as anything but good. I strongly suspect that deep down he hated himself sometimes and the goodness that he projected as Q saving the world was a facade that he knew hid this from himself. But I wasn't sure he liked looking at that, so everyone else had to be pure evil the instant they disagreed on anything or seemed critical of his ideas. He was always right about everything. What shocked me most was the realisation that his entire character was composed of and entirely dependent on other people's views of him and made up of bits of other people's personalities he'd patched together, like a magpie gathering things for a collection back at his secret nest. I should say his self-view relied solely upon how I saw him because I never got to see him interact with anyone in the real world offline. He was much loved by his own numerous friends and his extended family, he informed me, and his men loved their captain, and nobody had ever suggested he was anything but wonderful, was the implication. Therefore, there was something wrong with me for seeing anything wrong with his behaviour. His interactions with me were vital, I could see, because if I saw him as good and right, then he was, and he was elated. If I saw any flaw, even if he thought something I said that wasn't anything to do with him, was somehow a criticism of him, and I was being extremely careful not to even joke with him now, in case he thought the joke was about him, he went ballistic and became very upset and started a victim script up which went along the lines of nobody cared about him and we were all out to get him, plotting to bring Q down, trying to kill him. Q had powerful enemies and I couldn't be trusted after all the love he'd given me, after loving me right down to the bone. How could I be so cruel to him? I was making him sick. Everyone was after him. I had no idea the stress, etc. The notion of him being the hero Q was by now ridiculous, as was the idea that his family could tolerate his arrogance or his manipulative behaviour for longer than perhaps a quick visit whenever he was in town. The idea he would be an army person with a responsible job I found ludicrous but very funny. I didn't suggest again that he block people writing to him at the Stone Age puzzle address he used, as he'd been very annoyed when I'd suggested it, on saying he was getting YouTubers stressing him out by writing, sending threats there, and I didn't take the bait by responding to his attempts to start arguments with me much when he was at his most defensive, and did a lot of yes-dearing. 
This often infuriated him more, but it was better than trying to respond with logic, as he didn't want to be calm. He wanted to vent by arguing and to keep an argument going. I'd learned this yes dear technique from the last boyfriend who tended to tune me out a lot. Looks at you to see if you are bored by my tale or just looking at the reflection of the ever darkening sky in the red puddle that has appeared in our path as I did. We jump the reflection circled by raindrops together. It was stirring stuff and he was good at it, but you could feel that he was circling you, looking for your weaknesses so that he could tear down any defences against him and destroy you. Such was the level of hatred he was capable of sometimes. I dreamed he whispered in my ear, I hate you, I'm coming to kill you. And I sprang up with a start, sweating, as they do in movies, in the first light of dawn, thinking, I have to find him quickly, or he will punish me for not being the woman he wants. Then I'd think, calm down and look at the phone, expecting to see the message there, seeing instead the usual type. Where were you? Fuck you! and realise he'd turned up, as he occasionally did, a few hours later than planned the night before, and I'd gone to bed exhausted from the stress of staying up to talk to him the previous night, despite knowing I should get a good night's sleep to get up for work, where I was likely to worry on and off all day that he'd know what I'd been doing somehow when I wasn't talking to him, looking for his real identity online that maybe somehow he'd hacked my computer or somehow guessed that what I was planning or maybe I wasn't acting keen enough on him. Maybe he'd smell a faint whiff of fear and get excited by it and want to feed on it like a vampire and make further threats or start in on my family far away, then tell me all the details of what he was doing to make sure I knew he was torturing them, getting some sicko pals from 8chan or the numbered fight club groups to help him stalk them. I pictured him phoning Desiree to tell her everything he could about me, including things that I'd never said, because that's what Q's Punisher does to naughty girls. Get help from his granny. I did a lot of meditation at work and was so glad I had something that helped me to keep a cool head and not go into the fearful places, thereby stoking the spark to life, but just noticing and dropping the thoughts when they arose. I knew he was looking for those places, like little crannies in a rock that he could grip to haul himself up on, to assault me more and pull me apart rock by rock, and I wanted to leave him no purchase to grab onto, to haul himself up by. I told myself, I'm a well-built castle or a tree that bends in a wind, but doesn't break because my roots are strong and fed on good deep soil. I'm going to be okay. And I can see that it is he that's the weak one. I felt very sure of this, despite how bad it was looking.
I promised myself if it got too abusive in there with him, with the verbal assaults, that I'd turn tail myself, although I never liked the weak position I feel a retreat puts you in with people like that. They come after you for their own amusement, if they're a stalker, even after you try to walk away. I knew that from Desiree. I had discovered, though, that he was a man entirely without empathy, and such a man is a very dangerous one, having no boundaries to hold him back, and being hardly human through the lack of being able to imagine another human's pain. It was an awful realisation when it hit me, since it meant the love we'd felt wasn't human either, or at least wasn't a fully human connection since you can never really connect with the person without empathy in a fully human way. They will have a functional utilitarian view of relationships in their lives and only see something as working for their purposes or not. In that sense, you are not human in their eyes, but a mechanism, and it becomes obvious after their initial idealization phase is passed and you don't or won't, as they see it, live up to their ideals, which is what they think they need to function. Q, in fact, was an extension of this kind of thinking. If the world doesn't live up to Q ideals and chooses evil instead of good, it gets punished. Anything which doesn't align with Q's will is obviously evil, obviously sick, since Q is always right and evil will be destroyed. That's inevitable, according to Q. To someone with no empathy, who thinks in black and white, whether you are in pain or enjoying what they are doing with you or trying to do to you, you do not merit your own ideas or independent actions as they know what's best for you. Matters not one whit to them. You are simply an irritation if you aren't going along with what they want from you. If they think you are useful and might be persuaded to do whatever they need you to do, they'll do whatever it takes to get you there and persuade you they are human and they'll tell you anything if they think it'll make you feel good enough to want to stay for your brainwashing to be complete and their own life as they see it made easier once it is. If you continue to be a problem, look out. The Punisher is angry and he is in favour of hanging and lynching. Yikes. One of the court documents I saw that made me think Terence sounded rather like Jay in his attitudes to relationships was a fraud case where he was asked about an ex-live-in girlfriend who he'd cheated on while still sharing the same bed and carrying on the start of an affair with a new love interest. The woman was now suing him to try to recover a large chunk of money she'd given him, which he'd insisted to her magnanimously that he'd intended to invest in a new business they'd run together, and then he hadn't done so. He pretended the business was starting up, hiring someone to do a website to support the pretense, then pretended to both girlfriends that he was not seeing anyone else. 
The deception was covered, was discovered, because he kept staying up late, skulking about with his phone in the house, and the girlfriend checked his messages. A guy that did a lot of pretending to keep himself afloat and keep everyone on board. He was asked in court about the ex, although I'm not clear why, perhaps to establish whether he was a liar. Did he still love her? The other side's lawyer asked, and he'd said, well, that's just something you say, isn't it? Uh Uh-huh, I thought, yeah, I'd learned to say it myself, and felt like a liar now for doing so, as in reality, I was grieving him by now. Most of the love had died the moment after the shock of him threatening me struck. I had to lie to stay safe, I felt, until I had his identity. The other things he'd said in court that seemed pertinent was the ex saying when asked if they still had a physical relationship or if she was just a landlady, as Terence had claimed, albeit one with a strange shortage of beds in her rental was that sex happened all up here with Terence pointing to her head. Uh Uh-huh, sure did. He was good at the old woo, too. Luckily for me, I'm not the giving-away-money type. I thought of the camping presents, the couple of books and so on, that he'd sent me, and wondered how he paid for them. Who paid his wages? Did he earn money from his music? I made little gifts for him, like an embroidered hanky with his initials on, and bought him an Irish fauna, but had never sent them to him, not even knowing his address. But he bought the same fauna, an inexpensive pewter trinket, while I wore the one I'd bought for him myself sometimes. Originally, we said we'd exchange them when we met, and it helped me feel him close. He'd had nothing from me but some great chats and some awful discussions that were nothing more than pointless arguments and accusations. He didn't manage to get me to have the tattoo he wanted me to get done, insisting he'd get a matching one with my name on it if I got one with his name. I thought now what a dreadful thing that was to suggest since it was a lie and would have been a physical scar that never went away. I could now see the cruel jokes he'd casually played and would have gleefully let me carry through on in our early days together, and a chill would run through me as I thought of how I'd promised I would pay the price for my pleasure when I had taken the leap of faith with him across the precipice. I was paying now as I knew I would. Even as I'd started to understand that he wouldn't be coming to meet me, the longing had continued, although I was now relieved that he wasn't coming. The grief of the loss of my love for him after the threat was made had exactly the same quality of longing to it, oddly, that my longing for his promised coming had. They say there are few emotions with many names on them. That anger is another version of fear, for example. And there may be something in that to think about, if one's the thinking type. 
I missed him terribly, even while I was still in there with him, hoping he would get tired of me and growing bored, find himself another woman, while I still found the ghost of my longing for him hanging about to keep me company. And yes, perhaps the ghost of my love too. The man with nobody at his core still strutted about, pacing like a poor player on the stage he'd constructed for us from bits of other people he'd mirrored to impress me with and the bits of me that I'd loved most mirrored back to myself to love. A little magic trick with mirrors for wooing women. I could see no way back to loving him now, now that the mirror was broken and I pressed onwards on the return journey, picking up the breadcrumbs on my way out of the maze, the very journey I'm retelling now.